From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is The Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Sarah, multimedia producer and your host for this episode. I'm going to open this episode with a quote from Mary Barton, a contributor to an Oxford journal called Diplomatic History. Back in June 2015, Mary wrote in a post for the OUP blog that studies of terrorist organizations, their structure and leaders, motivations, operating budgets, and violent ideologies have long overshadowed examinations of counterterrorism strategies. Scholarship on government or multilateral responses to terrorism are far and few between. I wanted to find out more about counterterrorism studies, shed some light on a field that seemed unfamiliar. I can hear you great. Okay, same here. Um, That's me chatting with Brian Lai, associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Iowa and associate editor for the Journal of Foreign Policy Analysis. I asked him how he would define terrorism. So part of the problem lies in just disagreement about you know, who can actually conduct terrorism, whether it's, it's limited to just non-state actors or whether states themselves can conduct acts of terrorism, who the target is, so some, some U.S. agencies uh, explicitly limit terrorism to attacks on non-combatants. Other agencies uh, open it up so that anyone can be a target of terrorist activity. Um, you know, some, some definitions limit it to just political uh, uh, acts that have explicitly political motives. Others include other types of motivations. Uh, so it's been notoriously difficult to find sort of a common definition. Generally, in my own research, uh, I sort of define it as uh, sort of violent uh, violence or the threat of violence conducted by non-state actors whose goal for that violence is to sort of uh, send a message to a broader audience about a generally a political motivation. But again, that's you know, that's sort of something I use in my own research. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that's a commonly accepted definition among researchers. It probably is, but among sort of the broader uh, community of people who work on terrorism, uh, there's, you know, like I said, there's lots of different approaches to, to defining it. One of the classic qualifiers you've always used is sort of this international versus domestic terrorists, right? So those who are domestic terrorists, you know, those who simply are from their own country and they attack their own country versus international terrorists who they may or may not be from the country they're attacking. They, you know, may uh, generally the idea is that they're attacking some foreign element that's, that's different from their own nationality. One of the parts of a traditional definition of terrorism is that it's conducted by some organized group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now we've added this idea of a lone wolf terrorist because you know they they generally are not part of a group. They're individuals who are committing acts of violence for part of some broader cause, but you know they're not part of any sort of organized uh, organizational activity. So now we have this you know we have all these different distinctions of you know terrorists who are not no longer part of a group but sort of decide to engage in activities on behalf of some cause. Dr. Anthony Richards, a reader in terrorism studies in the School of Business and Law at the University of East London and author of Conceptualizing Terrorism, also had an interesting answer to this question. When we approach this subject, I think the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that terrorism is a social construction. For that reason, I don't think anybody can speak truth as to what we mean by terrorism. But I, I think uh, perhaps a good sort of starting place would be, would be to look at the academic literature over the last sort of 40 or 50 years. 
And I think from that, and it's certainly where I sort of derive my understanding of terrorism, I think um, the psychological element is, is a core component of it. So uh, with that in mind, I, I would probably view terrorism as the use or threat of violence intended to generate a psychological impact beyond the immediate victims for a political motive. For me, the, one of the key things is to view terrorism as a particular method of political violence, regardless of who the perpetrators might be. So you might have guerrilla organizations, for example, that use the method of terrorism. You might even have states that use the method of terrorism. Or you might have terrorist organizations that use the method of terrorism. So I think it's probably more helpful to view terrorism as a particular method of violence, um, regardless of who the perpetrator might be. And the reason, therefore, there's a debate over defining it is, is that there is seen to be a need to define it and its parameters if we're going to respond effectively to it. And I think also terrorism has become more international than it has ever been. So if you're going to generate an effective international response to terrorism, then there needs to be some kind of agreement as to what uh, terrorism is. Now, in terms of the debates around it, well, there, there are many, but, but there probably two that I, I would focus on perhaps. One is that the problem of seeing terrorism as a perjurative term. I think in, in practice in the international community, terrorism is very loaded. It's emotionally loaded. It's seen as a negative term. It's, or some have put it, it's seen as a useful insult. That means is that it has often been described to use one's enemies or to use used against um, uh, your adversaries. Um, so, in other words, you're going down the road of using the word terrorism depending on who's carrying out the act of violence rather than being analytical about what that act of violence is. So, so that's one big problem is the subjective use of the term terrorism. The second broad issue, I think, is, is what components do you include in a definition of terrorism? For example, would you include civilian and or non-combatant targeting in a definition of terrorism? Does it just have to be politically motivated? I think there are some definitions out there that, that say it can be economically motivated or religiously motivated as well. And ha has anyone ever come to a consensus about anything related to terrorism, or has this just been? <laughs> I, I think I think if you look at the academic literature, perhaps of the last sort of 50 years, on this issue of, of defining terrorism or conceptualizing terrorism, I think there has been a significant degree of consensus. And that is that, that uh, terrorism involves the uh, intent to generate a wider psychological impact beyond the immediate victims. This idea that terrorism is used to transmit a, a message to a broad audience or to broad audiences. Richard English, director of the Center for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St. Andrews, and author of Illusions of Terrorism and Counterterrorism, referred to this conundrum as the definitional question. The definitional question confuses all of us. It's, it's one yeah. of those questions which we can never find a, a final answer to. For example, is terrorism something we should define as only being done by non-state groups, or should we include the massive violence which is practiced by states sometimes to terrorize populations, the Nazi violence in the 1940s, for example? Uh, is terrorism something which should be seen as primarily international, as with the atrocity of 9-11, or should we recognize that, the, as the statistics suggest, most terrorism is very local? So the definitional thing is very difficult. ISIS does some things which are terrorism, but obviously in other ways seems more like 
uh, being involved in a civil war. I think the homegrown thing is is, is a, a very worrying thing for many states because sometimes states look at a terrorist group and think they exist in another country, they exist in a particular region. But if you think that sympathizers who live next door to your own apartment might be the sort of people who go out and shoot, then it becomes a much more frightening thing for societies. My own sense is that the definition thing is really crucial in terms of for states, in terms of the kind of legislation that they use to deal with this. If you say someone is engaged in a criminal shooting, there are certain kinds of law that are appropriate. If you say it's terrorism, then you normally have a greater range of legal things that you can employ. My sense is that what we should really be doing is trying to find any kind of methods to make human suffering less likely. In other words, whatever's going to make shootings and bombings less likely is what we should engage in. If calling something terrorism is a necessary part to that, that doesn't seem to me to be a problem. Where I think we've sometimes been weak is in talking about terrorism as being something which only people who are foreign or exotic to us do. As for, for example, it seems to me quite a lot of the violence which has been historically practiced in the United States has been violence for a political purpose which terrorizes people. But generally speaking, for example, people haven't defined the Ku Klux Klan as a terrorist organization, whereas it seems to me in many ways you legitimately could. So what I would advise as a professor who studies this is that we're honest about what terrorism actually is and wherever we see it, we discuss it coldly, whether we think it's in our country or in another country. But the main thing should be to try and produce political responses and legal responses which make human suffering less likely rather than making them be more bloodshed. I heard some terms I was a little unfamiliar with. Non-state group, sub-state group. What are the technical differences? So I asked Erica Chenoweth, professor at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver and associate editor for the Journal of Global Security Studies. ISIS is what you might call a proto-state. It's, it's a group of people that are trying to become a state and claim that they are a state, but that aren't widely recognized as a state by other states. So, so okay. you call that more proto-state. A non-state actor would be like an insurgent group or a terrorist group um, or, or even an individual lone wolf that uses um, violence for political gains. Um, a state actor, you know, obviously states are comprised of people, but usually people define states as an organized set of institutions and bureaucracies that organize power in a concentrated way. Substate political violence is referring to violence that happens inside a country, and there are other kinds of political violence that happen across borders, so like transnational terrorist violence or um, interstate war is a form of, of political violence. Um, but substate violence would be anything that goes on internally. So that might be domestic terrorism or a civil war, or civil conflict, something of that nature. You know, there's there's a very wide range of potential policy responses to substate political violence, depending on the scale of it and depending on the capacity of the state. I asked Brian how terrorism and counterterrorism have evolved. Uh, we generally think of sort of international terrorism rising with uh, the Palestinian cause. So uh, the, a variety of Palestinian organizations wanted to sort of draw greater international attention to uh, their cause. Uh, and so they started to engage initially in sort of hijacking of airplanes. You know, perhaps the most famous of, of these Palestinian ones is the uh, attack against Israeli athletes in the 1972 Olympic Games. After those events occurred and, you know, you, saw, you did see worldwide attention sort of gravitate towards the Palestinian cause, uh, you know, international terrorism was something other groups began to see as an effective way of sort of um, in influencing opinion uh, on their issues. Uh, and then international terrorism starts to take a slightly different turn um, as groups start to 
want to target foreign states they believe are propping up regimes they dislike. Counterterrorism community experience after the 1972 games was that they really needed uh, to have some type of uh, response in the case of terrorist incidents. So you started to see after that a much more concerted effort among states to develop some type of sort of special forces capability to deal with those types of operations. And then you, again, you, but you also saw sort of, you know, greater awareness of the use of terrorist violence, you know, for particular plights. Um, you know, after 9-11, you really saw a dramatic change, in, particularly in, in the United States, uh, in terms of a couple of dimensions. I mean, one, the, perhaps the biggest is the sort of treatment of terrorists as not just criminals, but as sort of uh, someone were at war with. Uh, so, for example, there's a, a famous case where uh, Osama bin Laden was in, in Sudan in the early 90s, uh, and the United States wanted him out of Sudan because he had sort of a base of operations there. Uh, and so, you know, there's uh, reports that the Sudanese government, you know, poss had possibly had suggested that they could give, they'd be willing to sort of maybe hand over Osama bin Laden to the United States. Uh, but at that time, the U.S. didn't really have a an effective legal case against him. Uh, and so the reports that the U.S. just said, you know, we want you to expel him, but we don't want to take him right now. Uh, and so, you know, the, after 9-11, all that changed, and that the U.S. really began treating terrorists not just as sort of, you know, uh, as criminals, but instead as sort of people that, as combatants in a war against the United States. And so the types of actions that we were willing to sort of take against them really sort of changed dramatically. Um, you know, another shift in focus is really, again, because of the attention drawn and that shift in focus, the types of policies the U.S. adopted became very different. Uh, we began to internationalize our anti-terrorist efforts to a greater degree. Uh, you know, we always had training with foreign militaries, but that, that policy really sort of stepped up. I think you saw, you know, a greater willingness to use force abroad uh, to deal with terrorist organizations in their home, in whatever country they were hosting themselves in. Uh, and then in the U.S., I mean, there's, you know, a dramatically changed domestic focus on terrorism. I mean, I think prior to 9-11, you know, most, um, most American citizens were not really, you know, didn't really have terrorism on the mind. Uh, and then you also saw just get, you know, a greater focus on trying to uh, secure the United States against possible terrorist attacks, right? So the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, much greater growth in funding, um, and then at the, you know, finally at the broadest strategic level, I mean, terrorism became the principal foreign policy goal of the United States after 9-11, starting with uh, George W. Bush and through Obama. I mean, terrorism has been at the forefront of the U.S. national security strategy since 9-11, since and that sort of trickled down into the types of policies we adopt, the approach we take, as well as you know, the amount of funding and the amount of, sort of government agencies and contractors devoted to dealing with uh, terrorism. Richard studies the relationship between terrorism and counterterrorism, so I asked him if he could describe it to me. It's clearly a relationship which is mutually hostile, but it's also strangely one that's very intimate and paradoxically mutually echoing. In other words, what often happens is that non-state terrorist groups 
and state counter-terrorists exhibit some of the same kinds of tendencies. So both tend to exaggerate, I think, the degree to which violence will succeed in bringing about their goals, and both tend to underestimate the degree to which violent action will undermine what they're trying to do. So if you look at the post-9-11 period, one of the many reasons that al-Qaeda didn't become more popular amongst Muslims globally was the violence they practiced, especially against civilians. But one of the things that really under, undermined the US-led war on terror was the violence, especially in Afghanistan and Iraq, carried out by the military and their allies, particularly against civilians. So in a strange way, what you find is that not only are these two sets of actors closely mirroring and watching each other, but they're also kind of echoing each other's behaviors in paradoxical ways. Had anything surprised you uh, sort of exploring this relationship? So when you look at people like Michael Scheuer, who used to work for the CIA trying to catch bin Laden, when he writes about bin Laden, he writes about him almost with a kind of admiration or even something near to a, uh, not affection, but a sense of respect for the man. Similarly, when you looked at bin Laden, he was absolutely obsessed with the United States of America. So there's a sense in which there's a very close intimacy. The other thing which has surprised me slightly is the way that over different periods, you know, terrorism has been going on for a very long time, and over different periods you see the same things happening again and again, despite the fact that sometimes we should have learned our lesson. So if you look, for example, at the way in which states have often used torture as a way of trying to get information about terrorism from suspects, again and again this tends not to work in getting the right kind of information. Again and again it tends to turn people against you when you're using it, but for the French in relation to Algeria or the British occasionally in Ireland or the US post 9-11, the same things keep happening. In that sense, in a way, history sort of carries on almost repeating itself. Richard also discussed how counterterrorism evolved after 9-11 and what the war on terror achieved. I think there are three main changes that have occurred. The first is that the initial phase of counterterrorism post 9-11 was very heavily military, especially with the Afghan and Iraq engagements and invasions, and it's become less militarily focused and more led by intelligence and gathering intelligence on the groups against which the West is now uh, ranging itself. A second change has clearly been that what used to be a mainly al-Qaeda-related problem in terms of the United States has become much more focused on ISIS, which is in some ways a much larger beast. And I think the third thing that's happened is that you found that there has developed a better cooperation now between different states that are allying against terrorism. So you find there's better cooperation between the US and Europe, there's better cooperation within Europe between different countries in ways that have transformed the capacity for states to limit and to to deal with and to share information on terrorist adversaries. I think the war on terror achieved a constraining of al-Qaeda, so the al-Qaeda base that there had been in Afghanistan was fairly quickly destroyed in 2001. There have been a lot of planned attacks on the West and elsewhere that have been thwarted to, through intelligence work and police work, and there has been a sense that gradually there has been, as I've described, better cooperation and coordination between allies in fighting against terrorism. All of that is tremendous. On the other hand, it's also true that if you look at the statistics, 
the number of terrorist incidents and the number of people killed by terrorists actually rose dramatically during the war on terror phase, say between 2001 and 2007, partly because of the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, partly because of the implications of that for Pakistan and for other places, partly because as a result of what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq, there were particular attacks, for example, in London in 2005, in Madrid in 2004. So in some ways, the war on terror seems to me to have had a very mixed effect. It was probably over-military, it probably underestimated the importance of accurate intelligence, and it probably meant that in the earlier phase there were big mistakes made, which meant that more lives were lost. I wanted to know if there were any prevailing misconceptions that needed to be cleared up. Anthony, for example, spoke about the concept of freedom fighters. I think it's a myth, actually, to have this notion that one person's terrorist is another's is another person's freedom fighter because I think this statement confuses the goal with the activity as another uh, commentator Lennon Weinberg uh, pointed out I think uh, freedom fighting is referring to a goal and terrorism is referring to an activity when you look at Nelson Mandela you say well was he a terrorist or was he a freedom fighter well I, I, I'm not sure that's the, the right question I think if an act of violence ticks all, all the boxes for you to think that something is an act of terrorism, then an act of terrorism it remains, whether or not you go on to be a, a great world leader or not. Brian spoke about poverty and terrorism. One of the big misconceptions um, is the sort of connection between the poor domestic conditions in a country and the sort of rise of terrorist organizations. And so, you know, uh, in some ways, for example, um, there, there can be a case to be made that, you know, poverty, um, you know, lack of uh, opportunities in countries can produce terrorism. And that's was sort of the, uh, that's been sort of a policy approach uh, taken after 9-11. Uh, but, you know, we, you know, the, it's, there's a mixed research on the degree to which poverty actually leads to the spread of domestic or international terrorism. Um, you know, many scholars have looked at the backgrounds of many international terrorists, and in general, they don't come from impoverished backgrounds. You know, that many of the 9-11 attackers, for example, came from Saudi Arabia and Egypt, uh, you know, relatively wealthier countries than we might think as uh, compared to other countries. There are, you know, lots of people who face sort of uh, poverty, uh, inequality in a country, but only a small group of them actually join a terrorist organization. Uh, and so I think that's uh, that has been a difficult thing to deal with. Now, you know, obviously, ending poverty, inequality are goods in and of themselves. The degree to which those will impact sort of uh, dealing with terrorism is very complicated, and I think can be is something that sort of maybe misconstrued uh, in terms of a policy that could, you know seeing this sort of as a magic bullet to get rid of terrorism. And Erica talked about associations between mental illness and terrorism and militarism and counterterrorism. Well, I think a lot of people assume that terrorist terrorist violence is always of a certain ideology. It's always like fundamental religious ideologies and things like that. And the truth is that we've seen terrorist violence emerging out of all different types of of organized ideologies that you can imagine. And then uh the other thing that's often thought is that um they're sort of mentally ill or crazy people. There, there's there's usually some kind of rationale for what's going on, even if it's completely illegitimate. It's rarely the case that terrorists themselves are truly mentally ill. Um, usually that they have some set of grievances or ideologies that they've 
convince themselves justify the use of violence toward innocent civilians to try to send a, a broader message. Um, and certainly why uh, one doesn't condone such things by admitting that there might be kind of strategic rationales for it. Um, sometimes useful to observe that because it speaks to the policy dimension. So in terms of policy responses, I'd say one of the most uh, prominent misconceptions about counterterrorism is that it's always a militaristic set of tools in a toolbox. So like most people, when they think of counterterrorism, they think of, you know, tactical police forces, you know, engaging in a standoff with a hostage or responding to a bomb threat. Or, you know, on the international level, they think about um, special operations, drones. In fact, um, there's a very broad range of potential counterterrorism actions and many of them that are not military actions and then that are not even coercive have been found to be really effective. So Laura Dugan and I um, have done a study on what has made Israeli counterterrorism actions most effective. And we actually found that winning popular support among uh, Palestinian communities by using actually more conciliatory actions like offers of negotiations or promises to help uh, subsidize the improvement of infrastructure or different types of key concessions around territory actually reduced uh, violence from Palestinian terror groups. And our argument is that that takes place because um, the groups won't support those that try to spoil these types of concessions. So if the Israeli government actually starts to come out and make very sincere statements about concessions that it wants to make, the public is going to want to want to make that happen rather than um, a group kind of spoiling it and um, making it go away. So um, because terrorist groups are generally very responsive, actually, to public opinion, we see lower rates of violence when, when the government takes measures like this. So I would just say that um, people should think about a much broader range of potential ways to reduce violence besides just, you know, escalating it with military means. Erica is a member of the research team for the GATE Data Project, or the Government Actions in Terror Environments Data Project, which collects data about day-to-day counterterrorism efforts. The GATE Data Project is just a collection of data related to all these different types of counterterrorism actions that I mentioned, and it formed the basis of the study for looking into the effectiveness of different types of counterterrorism actions in Israel that I mentioned. But uh, we've collected data for about 13 different countries, and what we're trying to do is evaluate, you know, which types of actions that governments take toward terror, terrorist groups and the populations that they purport to represent um, and, you know, try to find out which types of actions are more effective than others in reducing violence. So, you know, the, the reason it's a major contribution is it's one of the world's first actual counterterrorism databases that looks at each counterterrorism action on its own. So. You know, it'll, it'll look at like each strike, each raid, uh, each arrest, each concession or moment of negotiation with a different group like the Taliban or something like that. It, it has all of those different incidents in the database. And so we can really well track the effects that those types of incidents or collections of those incidents have on terrorist violence. I downloaded the data spreadsheet for Canada and scrolled through it. It is a comprehensive and impressive amount of information on Canada's response to terrorist violence. The data covers a time period between 1985 and 2013, and included who took action, whether it was a politician or the police or the military, and short descriptions of the action that was taken. 
we download news stories um, from, in that case, 16 different Canadian newspapers that are Anglophone newspapers. And um, we look at every single action that the government took toward its population and then which types of actors um, would think that that would be relevant to them. So, you know, if the government um, of Canada started to held meetings with Muslim leaders um, in response to fears about Al-Qaeda-inspired terrorism, um, we would code that. We would code it as a conciliatory action that the Canadian government was taking toward Muslims in general. And then we could look at the effects of different counts of those types of behaviors by the government on different levels of terrorist violence by those specific types of groups. Have, have you started to sort of parse through this or you're still just sort of putting things together? Yeah, we have. We, we have a paper coming out actually in the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal. And um, it shows that, in fact, Canadian in involvement in the Afghanistan war in particular um, was correlated with an increase in Al-Qaeda-inspired terrorist attacks in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that we're able to show with those data is that by increasing counterterrorism footprints abroad, Canada also started to engage in a lot more counterterrorism at home, not just toward um, Muslims or Al-Qaeda-inspired groups, but also toward right-wing terror, you know, groups or right-wing constituencies, left-wing constituencies, environmental groups, and so forth. And so what our data really show is that tendency that a lot of people talk about for kind of mission creep, like if the government starts to engage in a war on terrorism, it really starts to do that regardless of the ideology of the different groups that they're fighting. Um, and so you really do start to see like a, a lot more kind of coercive actions by the government toward its own population in general. Anthony has studied counterterrorism in the UK, so I asked him about his research. There are so many different components that to do with the British response. Clearly, there have been a number of uh, tactical achievements from the UK intelligence agencies in terms of preventing acts of violence or terrorism in the last sort of 10 to 15 years. But intelligence can never be the complete answer, unfortunately. We can't expect intelligence agencies to prevent everything. So that means that you have to have a very multi-dimensional counter-terrorism strategy. And we have a strategy in this country called CONTEST, and it consists of the four Ps. And the four Ps include pursue, prevent, protect, and prepare. So these are four very broad areas of, of UK counter-terrorism that's sort of embodied in this uh, CONTEST counter-terrorism strategy. It's not without its controversies. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of controversies in, in, in relation to legislation, especially over issues like extended detention without trial or an offence that was uh, proposed of glorification of terrorism, whatever glorification means. And indeed, we had the regime of control orders, which are now called TPIMs, where you have, um, you, you have people um, monitored um, with tags on them um, in, in their own homes but who haven't been brought to trial. So, so we have, we have a, a, a lot of controversial uh, issues in relation to terrorism legislation. The prevent strategy, I think, has also been quite controversial. In particular, the, uh, the British government is, is talking of a non-violent ideology that is extremist, but conducive to terrorism. So it's non-violent, but also conducive to terrorism. Now, most terrorism scholars would think that anything that's non-violent that is conducive to terrorism is a bit of a contradiction in terms. So, so um, we have this uh, issue now in the UK where 
the government is focusing much more on the way people think ideologically as well as on the methods of violence that people might use. Has that changed quite a bit over the years that they're looking at the ideology now versus maybe years ago, maybe they didn't? Well, I, I think in, in the mid-2000s, we, we had this sort of emerging discourse of radicalization in this country. And it was, wasn't quite clear as to whether this just meant radicalization towards the use of violence or whether radicalization also meant a focus on the way people thought ideologically. Now, in the 2011 version of the Prevent Strategy, it became much clearer. The government was certainly concerned with the way people thought ideologically. I think one of the controversies about this approach is that it's possible to have large swathes uh, of a population or large segments of, of the Muslim population who deplore the methods of Al-Qaeda or ISIS, who hate the use of violence, but are nevertheless then seen as part of the terrorism problem by virtue of their belief system or their non-violent ideology. And I think this is probably an unhelpful counterterrorism conundrum. A huge thank you to my guests this week, Anthony Richards, author of Conceptualizing Terrorism and also a few articles about UK counterterrorism for a journal called International Affairs, Brian Lai, associate editor for the Journal of Foreign Policy Analysis, Erica Chenoweth, author of Why Civil Resistance Works and is working on two books, Civil Resistance, What Everyone Needs to Know, and a textbook on terrorism. Richard English, author of Illusions of Terrorism and Counterterrorism, and Terrorism, How to Respond. And thank you for listening. More episodes of the Oxford Comment can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and as always, on the OUP blog. And if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please feel free to leave us a comment. Until next time, friends. <laughs>